Hey ladies, welcome to the Woman Podcast. My name's Katie Beza and I'm your host. And this episode is a continuation of a teaching series that we have started this year in 2021. So our good friends Rebecca Shatswell and Heather Hoyt will be leading us through the Gospel of Luke. And this teaching is recorded live at New Life Church in Conway. If you're local and you'd like to join in person, we would love to have you. We meet Thursdays at noon. And we hope this resource helps you as you read along in the book of Luke. And we hope that it encourages you that you can read the Word of God and you can get something out of it. So tune in and we hope you enjoy. Okay, how is everybody? Oh, who is enjoying the sunshine finally? Yes. Amen. Even though it was cooler this morning, just give me some sunshine. Um, I've just been thinking and praying for you guys as we're kind of getting towards the end of the book of Luke. I think we'll go the next few weeks throughout April and maybe a couple weeks into May and then we'll be done before school is out for all the mamas in the room and all the students in the room. Um, But I have just been thinking and praying for you guys because my heart in it, and I know Abby's heart, Katie's heart, Heather's heart, when we kind of got together and started this, was really that God would use this to plant seeds that would then grow and give you guys tools, um, anointing, confidence in the scripture to then turn around and plant those seeds into other people's lives. Because if there's anything I've watched over the past year and a half, it is how desperate our world needs to understand who Jesus is. But if we as the people of God don't know who he is, then there is no way the world around us who has no relationship with him is going to be able to understand him. And so So my heart is to just teach the gospel, teach who Jesus is, what he loved, what he hated, what he corrected, what he encouraged so that his heart will be planted in us. So I just want to encourage you guys. I know we're getting to the end of the school year and then we'll get into summer, but would you guys pray about who does God want you to influence with his scripture? Whether it's a small group he wants you to start, whether it's uh, your family around the table, whether it's friends that you're in connection with, when God plants something in us, it is to grow. It's not just so that it changes us, but it's so it changes us in a way that causes us to change other people, okay? So just wanna encourage you with that. But we're gonna jump in. We're actually talking about Luke chapter 17 and 18 today, but I actually wanna read a verse from Luke chapter 19 that I feel like is the theme over these two chapters today. Um, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Does somebody wanna read that for us? This is actually the conclusion to the... um, is it, I think it's Zacchaeus story. Y'all remember that song? Zacchaeus, we little. Look at this. Somebody grew up in Sunday school. Na, 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 Okay, this is amazing. Yeah, okay, a lot of people know it better than I do, but I did grow up with that song. So this is actually the verse that concludes this story. Will somebody read it for us? For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. 
The Son of Man, who's that referring to? This is the title he most often used in reference to himself. He called himself the Son of Man, meaning he was here to literally serve humanity, okay? The Son of Man came to do what? To seek and save the lost. What kind of statement is that? Okay, when Jesus says the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, this is a statement of purpose. In other words, what do I mean by purpose? I mean the answer to the question, why am I here? This is a very important thing for us to zero in on because the two most important questions that every human wrestles with on the inside of them, deep down, whether they ever admit it or not, from the young ones to the old ones is a question of identity, who am I? And the second is a question of purpose, why am I here? Every human heart has the longing to know the answer to those two questions. Who am I? And why am I here? The amazing thing is that these two questions that every human wrestles with, how many of you have ever wondered those two questions about your own life? Have you ever thought, who am I? Who am I? Who am I supposed to be? Who was I created to be? And have you ever wondered the question, why am I here? Do I have a purpose? Do I have a calling? Do I have something to do, something to contribute to make this world a better place? The saved, the unsaved, as Jackie Hill Perry says, the saints and the ain'ts all ask these same questions. They all ask, who am I and why am I here? Because deep within us, God has put a spiritual longing and it is a longing that cannot be filled by a human. It cannot be filled by our parents. It cannot be filled by a spouse or friends or community. As much as those things speak into our lives and help us, it is a longing for God himself. So I'm just encouraging you guys, when you see a statement purpose come out of the mouth of Jesus, I want you to be encouraged. Because when he states what his purpose is, he is telling you and I what our purpose is. So if you have ever struggled with that question, why am I here? All you have to do is go to Jesus's life and see where Jesus explains why he is here to know why you are here. Let me explain what I mean by that. Okay, I've got to be able to move around. I'm having tripping issues. Give me a second. Do y'all ever feel confined? I'm having that confined feeling, but then I feel trapped by the chair. Okay, pause. Oh, let me see where I can get to it. Okay, John chapter 20, verses 21 through 22. I promise we're gonna get into Luke. Will somebody read those two verses? As again, Jesus said, so has anyone put together where this moment is happening? Do y'all know where this is taking place? Does anyone know it enough without reading the context? What's going on? Yeah. Okay, upper room or wherever they were gathered after the crucifixion, but they hadn't seen Jesus yet. The disciples hadn't. The girls had, okay, because they were hanging out at that. They knew where to be, right? And they were there ahead of time. So they got the very first visitation of Jesus. They got the very first assignment to go out and share the good news of Jesus. I just have to pay attention to that. But then Jesus reveals himself to his disciples in the upper room. And this is their first time to lay eyes on their resurrection. Savior. It's a powerful moment. This is the same moment where he tells Thomas to touch the scars in his hands and his feet and look at his side to prove to Thomas this is really who he says he is. But in this moment, he says, peace be with you. Why does he have to say that? Why are they afraid? He didn't open the door. 
Okay, if anyone shows up in the room and they didn't open the door to get there, how many of y'all are gonna feel a little fear in your heart, right? So it didn't matter that they're like, this is Jesus. They're like, he didn't walk through that door, okay? So he has to say, peace be with you. And then what does he say to them? As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. What he is saying right there is the same purpose you just watched lived out in my life day in and day out for the last three years that my father gave to me. I am now placing that purpose upon you. This is so important because when we struggle to try to understand why we are here on earth, if we do not reconnect with our source, we will never have the answer to that question. Because you and I, we didn't create ourselves, did we? Some of us were intentionally the product of our parents' decisions. Some of us were unintentionally the product of our parents' decisions, right? I mean, we don't have to like take a survey, but probably there are some of us in our room, our parents planned to have us. Some of us, our parents did not plan to have us. But do you know what I learned? Because it was not easy for me to have babies. We prayed, we did the deed. We did the deed a lot for many years. It didn't happen. We went to doctors. We prayed some more. People prayed. It took prayers and Jesus and everything you can imagine for us to have babies. So I know that's struggle. But do you know the weirdest thing when I got pregnant that I realized? I have zero control over this child. I don't know if this child's going to be a boy or a girl. I do not know one characteristic about this child. I do not know what their eye color, hair color will be like. I don't know if they will be tall or short. I don't know if they'll be introverted or outgoing. I don't know what their talents will be. Did I get to make one decision in my own children? Who created each one of us? in our mother's womb. The Bible says you were intimately fashioned in your mother's womb. You and I have a creator, we have a father, we have an author that supersedes our human parents that intentionally designed us. I say that because at the core of every human is to know who they are. You and I, before we were the, the daughters of our parents, I'm saying daughters, Travis, son, of our parents, we were the daughters of God. He intentionally created us. That's who our identity comes from. It comes from our Father. So we cannot have a sufficient answer to who we are until we know our source. And we cannot know why we are here until we know our source. Does that make sense? So let's go back to Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Um... Okay, I, and I just wanna say, sorry, back on John. It says, and with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, Jesus was giving them the empowerment to walk out the purpose he had just walked out. The empowerment to walk out their purpose came from whom? Through the Holy Spirit. It came from Jesus through the Holy Spirit. Do you remember at the very beginning of Luke when we talked about how Jesus declared his first purpose statement when he said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. The Spirit of God anointed Jesus to fulfill his purpose. And his purpose was to see the lost everywhere he went. And sometimes the lost were the poor. Sometimes it was people that were bound. Sometimes it was blind people or oppressed people. But everywhere Jesus went, he had eyes to see the lost in front of him the way that God saw him. So it, Luke 19 says, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek, which means what? 
to look for, to find, to search out. How many of you have ever felt found by God? And to save, what does that mean? To rescue, to reconnect to the Father, to restore what's been broken, to save the lost. So I want you guys to think about this question because we say the word the lost in the church so much that I think we forget what the word really means. It kind of just becomes a churchy word, right? Like we're here to save the lost. We know that that's our purpose, that's our mission, right? The reason I want to say that is often when we start to become very familiar with words in the church, God can't speak power through their meaning anymore to us because they're so familiar. So a lot of times if I come across churchy words in scripture, I stop and say, God, what are you trying to say to me brand new in this thing I've heard a hundred thousand times, okay? So in what ways can a person be lost? Hmm? Disconnected? How else? Directionally, they can be lost. How else? Alienated. Physically, go in the wrong way. Emotionally, I made a small list. Lost dreams, lost hope, lost passion, lost in other things, lost mentally, lost direction, lost eternally. When the New Testament uses the word lost, I want you to think of this phrase, hidden in plain sight. Most of the time, if you're anything like me, when we lose something, it is actually nearby, but we cannot see it. Does anyone have that problem? I can't tell you how many times a day I have to recruit the, my husband and every soul in my house to find my keys and my phone. And most of the time, it's so close to me and I just can't see it. My husband, will, I will ask him about something in the refrigerator. Do we have blah, blah, blah? Yeah, it's in there. Just go check. And I'll go and I'm like, it's not in here. He's like, yes, it is. He's so good at finding. I'm so good at losing. So we're really a great combination. I'm like, it's not in here. He's like, yes, it is. And he will literally come. It's right in front of me, but I cannot see it. Can anyone relate to that disability? I have a disability of seeing things that are right in front of me, but I think this is what God means by the lost. They're right in front of us. They're hidden in plain sight. They're nearby, but we are not able to see that they're actually lost. One of the first times in scripture that some person gives God a name that he has not given himself, it comes from a story of a lady by the name of Hagar. She's actually gone through a really rough thing. I'm not gonna get into her story a whole lot, but she's out in the desert. She's fleeing from her master. She's been mistreated. And God literally shows up in the desert and speaks to her. And scripture says this, she gave this name to the Lord, Elroy, the God who sees me. God sees the ones that others don't see. And he sees inside of us what other people cannot see. But he has given us the Holy Spirit to anoint our eyes to see other people the way that he sees them. A couple of years ago, I was in Starbucks. And just being really honest with you, Brandon and I had had a fight right before I went to Starbucks. And so I wasn't in the best frame of mind, but I was like, I'm gonna go get a coffee. I don't know if y'all have ever been there. Uh, and I walked in, it was like, have y'all ever wanted to walk into a public place but be invisible? 
you know? It was like one of those moments, like, I hope nobody sees me, nobody asks me what's going on. I hope I don't see anyone from church. I'm just here to get my coffee and need to leave. And so, uh, actually, Brandon was with me, and we went to the counter. We ordered, and I'm just trying to pretend like I'm invisible right there. And God speaks to my heart, draws my attention to a girl sitting over in the corner, and he said, I want you to go talk to that girl and invite her to woman conference. I'd never had a conversation with this girl ever. And I was like, now of all times, because I did not want to have a conversation. I wasn't in the mood. And so I was like, okay, God, I'll, I'll do what you're asking me to do. I walk over and have a conversation. One of her dear friends is in here right now. Have a conversation with her. Had never talked to her in my life. I'm like fumbling around for why I'm starting a convo with a complete stranger. Have y'all ever been there? God asked you to do something. And you're like, okay, I'll do it, but it's not going to be pretty. It was kind of one of those conversations. And try to like fumble my way around explaining we do an event for women. Would she like to come? And she's like, actually, I've been to your church like once or twice. My roommate's gonna go and I've never really been a part of something like that. And I wanted to go with her, but all the tickets are sold out. So yeah, I would love to come. And I was like, I cannot believe this just happened. And so I was like, well, I can get you in. And so I, I get her a ticket or whatever. She comes, she comes up to me after the conference and is like, so thank you so much for inviting me. I rededicated my life to God. And I'm like, whoa. And then she and I like start hanging out and develop a relationship. And she's now in a small group and she's now like seeking out other people to see how she can be an influence for God in their life. And I thought, you know what I think made the difference in that moment is that she just felt seen by God. That's really all it was. God, God drew her to my attention because he, she had his attention. His eyes were on her. He just needed somebody to see her for one second the way that he saw her. And I think because she felt seen, it made a huge difference in her life. So I wanna encourage you guys to ask God. It doesn't have to be this big superpower. When the Holy Spirit moves through us, sometimes it really doesn't feel super. But sometimes the Holy Spirit will just simply give you eyes to see somebody the way you don't see them. And I just would ask God, like as you're out and about doing life on a normal basis, God, will you give me your eyes to pay attention to somebody that I would normally pass by? Because in Luke chapter 17 and 18, we continually see Jesus either interacting or teaching about interacting with people that are unseen by the church leaders of the day. My point in saying it is the church leaders were the ones with the word of God that were to be sharing that with the world around them. But because of a lot going on in the church in that day, there were a lot of groups of people and types of people that were completely invisible to the church at that point. And Jesus kept drawing people's attention to those that everyone was missing. So Luke chapter 17, verse 11. Okay, it says, while traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, 10 men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he told them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him, and he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, were not 10 cleansed? 
where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. Okay, this is a unique healing moment. We've already seen Jesus heal several people at this point in his life, in his ministry, right? Why does this one seem unique? There's several reasons it's not like another healing. Okay, do we, I mean, there might be some other examples, but this is one of the rare examples where there are several people sick at one time that ask Jesus all for the same healing in that moment. So that makes it stand out. What else is unique about it? One was a Samaritan. We can assume the others were Jewish by the way Jesus addressed it. You were gonna say the same thing. Anyone, anything else that stands out to you about this healing that's not like the others? He told him to go to the priest. What were you going to say, Carrie? They asked for mercy. He gave them healing. That's a great point. He, okay, that's another great point. He does not tell them not to say anything, right? Who does he actually tell them to go share this with? He says, go show yourselves to the priest. What I think is interesting about it is it's not an immediate healing. He does not heal them right there in that moment. And most of the times we see Jesus lay his hands on somebody and heal them, speak it over them and they're healed and we see it happen in the moment. What does he tell them to do? He tells them, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. They wanted healing, but Jesus was looking for obedience. They wanted healing, but Jesus was looking for obedience. Can you imagine if they, they thought when he said, go show yourselves to the priest, well, he didn't really touch us like we saw him heal the other people. I guess it didn't happen and they didn't actually get to the priest. Would they have received the healing that Jesus planned for them? Probably not. So they wanted healing, but Jesus was looking for obedience. Is God asking you to obey in any area that you have ignored? Could God have a greater plan that we don't get access to without obedience? They're wanting healing, but he doesn't really pronounce healing. He tells them to go show themselves to the priest. And by faith, they have to just obey and know that that healing will come as they obey. So 10 go and show themselves to the priest. But then what happens that's also unique about the story? What happens? One returns. It says, verse 17, Jesus asked, we're not all 10 cleansed. Where are the other nine? Why do you think only one came back? His heart was changed. What seems to separate this one from the rest? Somebody already mentioned it. He's a Samaritan. So why is the Samaritan, the foreigner, going to be the only one that comes back? Maybe he realized his lostness. Why, okay, so maybe a better way to ask it is why do you think the other nine did not come back? I think it was entitlement. I think they expected Jesus was going to do this for them because they were sons of Abraham. They deserved it. So only one came back in complete honor and worship and praise. And what does Jesus say to the one that he doesn't say to the other nine because they didn't come back? 
He said, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Some versions say saved you. This is literally referring to eternal salvation. All 10 got physical healing. Only one got eternal salvation. And think about it. As powerful as physical miracles are, they are still only temporary. If our souls end up in hell, but God healed us on earth physically of something, it's the greater loss for us, right? So there's a physical healing that all 10 receive, but there is a spiritual healing that only one receives because he comes back and he gives worship. Is God showing us how rare a response of thankfulness and worship is when he decides to move? One in 10, one in 10 will return and worship and thank him and praise him for what he's done. And it's not the ones who are always in church. It's the outsider that is the one that is going to make sure he gets back to Jesus, lays eyes on him once again and says, thank you for what you just did. It changed my life. And we have to remember the impact of leprosy in this culture. We, we actually understand social distancing in a way we've never understood, right? So we can relate with the distancing side of it. But I don't know if you've ever seen somebody who is a leper. If you've ever seen what leprosy does to someone's body, it's very deforming. A lot of times after long periods of time, they will have completely deformed limbs, hands, and feet. It's very grotesque. Back in the day, they had to wear all kinds of bandages. So not only was it a sickness, but because it was considered unclean and so, okay, I cannot handle seeing little one just smile at me while I'm talking. Are you loving the word of God? But anyway, because it was kind of a really gross sickness to look at and it made them unclean, they were really marginalized and ostracized from society. They were not even allowed to live within the city limits. So think about the kind of life you would be leading if that was your existence day in and day out. You had this label on you. You could not go in and shop when other people shopped. You had to keep a distance of however many feet away it was from every person. You had to shout to let people know you were a leper so that they would get out of the way and not get close to you. That's their existence. And Jesus heals them as they are heading to the priest and one returns to give him thanks. I just, it made me stop and think, God, have you done this level of amazing miracles in my life that I forget to come back and give you thankfulness for? So I just wanted to take a few minutes. I want us to think, what has God done in my life in the past year? And I want to take like three minutes. If anybody wants to say, God has done this in my life in the past year. So can I just tell you to not take a delay in an answer as disregard from the Lord? Do not perceive a delay as disregard. He is mindful of every prayer you pray and however many times you pray those prayers. In Revelation, we see that our prayers go up before the presence of the Lord in his throne room like incense. And he is constantly being reminded and asking, honestly, asking his angels to continually remind him of the prayers of his people that are going up before him. And some things we see in scripture for the breakthrough to take place, sometimes it took a year. Sometimes it took 25 years. Sometimes people waited 40 years to see breakthrough in an area that God had promised them. So I just want to encourage you to not lose heart in the wait, in the delay, and don't perceive it as God doesn't care, he's not listening, or he's unconcerned. Okay? 
Um, so it says, will, even more so, will a just God listen and move on behalf of his children? But, there's a but at the very end of that statement. What is the but? But when the Son of Man comes, will he find what he's saying is when God does decide to move, when he does decide to show up and intervene and we see a move of God happen, it's only gonna go to those who are standing in faith and believing and waiting upon him. So he's saying there will come a time where we will see a move of God, but those who will benefit the most from it are the ones that will be standing in a place of faith at the time when Jesus decides to move. Have y'all ever been in a season where you've seen God move in a lot of people's lives all at one time? I think there are moments where there's like a favorable moment from God and we see his spirit move in, in a mighty way in a lot of people's lives at once. I know I've watched it some happen over 2020 and I really feel like it's just kind of the birth pains of what we are about to see God do. So can I encourage you? To spend time with the Lord and ask him, is there something that you have stopped believing for that God wants to resurrect? And I also wanna ask you, what do you have bold audacity to continue pursuing until you see victory? The Bible says to each one of us is given a measure of faith. In other words, when God wants you to believe for something, he is going to give you a measure of faith that can sustain that belief. I knew that I knew God had called us to have children. And I knew even listening to doctors tell us we had less than a 5% chance that it would ever happen, that God was saying something different. And I knew that I was not supposed to stop believing and stop pursuing. God gave me a measure of faith for that. And my two children are at the surprise of doctors. They're not at the surprise of the Lord. There are things that God will want to do in your life that may seem crazy to everyone around you, but he will give you a measure of faith. And can I encourage you, stir that measure of faith up on the inside and do not allow the enemy or anyone else to tell you it's not going to happen. I just think God loves to prove people wrong. You know, it's like we know he's smarter than us, but I think he really likes to demonstrate it sometimes. You know, like, okay, but I am smarter than you. Okay. Okay. Verse nine, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, which is a church leader, stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What a prayer. I'm like, dude, (laughs) your prayer life needs help. But then I'm like, have I ever prayed prayers like this? Um, he says, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. I mean, can't you hear it? Like God's like, great job, dude. You know? Um, so that's his prayer. And it says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast, which is a little extreme and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Why is a tax collector considered a sinner in this culture? Okay, but what were they known for? They were known for theft. They were known for asking for more than was required and then pocketing the money. So people really did not like them in this culture because they were viewed as like, you know, 
yeah, sharks, and they were benefiting at the expense of the people. And who likes a tax collector? Like even in our day, no one really, sorry if you're a tax collector. Anyway, um, so there's this negative view of them and they're just kind of viewed as corrupt. You know, people just look at them and they, that, that's how they think of them. And so in the scenario, Jesus is trying to say, there's two people that go to the house of God. They both pray prayers. Here's the prayers of both of the people. The Pharisee says, thank you, God, that I'm not like all of these other corrupt people. I do all of these great things. God ignores the prayer. Ignores the prayer. Does not hear it. Even though he fasts twice a week, he fasts. He doesn't eat twice a week. God doesn't hear his prayer. Because God isn't concerned in our religious acts that we think we need to do to get approval, right? What is God concerned with? What does God pay attention to? Our heart, but what else? Huh? Obedience? Humility? He is interested in those who express their need for the Lord. The Pharisee does not think he needs the Lord. He thinks he's doing everything that's required. He thinks he's done enough in himself. The tax collector knows without God's mercy, he doesn't have anything. So God regards the prayer for mercy from the sinner and disregards the prayer of arrogance, I guess you could say, from the Pharisee. So even though the tax collector would be a person in this culture that would be unseen, he is not unseen by the Lord because God never disregards a prayer for mercy and repentance, no matter how great the sin. If the prayer is sincere, God will always respond. You know, the Bible says that he opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If we will humble ourselves before the Lord, he will bend down to listen and to help us, which is really cool. Okay, this may be our last one. I really wanted to get to the rich young ruler. Okay, the next one is about the children. I won't stay on the topic long, but children were another unseen category of people in this culture because they just were not considered um, extremely valuable until they became adults. They didn't have any legal rights. They weren't really regarded as contributing anything to society. They were kind of like stay out of the way, unseen, unheard. And so parents are bringing their children for Jesus to bless them and the disciples start rebuking them like, Jesus doesn't have time for your kids. He's got more important things. He's got healings and teachings and other things. Don't bring your kids, okay? And what does Jesus say? He says, do not hinder them for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. He's saying, you want to not see these kids and I not only see them, but I see how much you need to be just like them if you're gonna be in my kingdom. What do children have that adults do not have? They have innocence, what else? Humility, what else? total faith that their parents are going to provide and take care of them. I don't know if you're a parent of young kids, but I am. And I, all day long, I hear what they need, right? Mama, I need this. Can you get me this? Will you do this? Will you find this? Can you grab this? Sometimes it's not with nice manners, but I hear all day long what they need. And I love how Jesus is saying, I need you to become like them. 
be innocent like them, be excited, be full of wonder like kids are naturally. You don't even have to train a child to worship. They are just worshipers in who they are. You have to untrain somebody to worship. You don't have to train them to worship. Uh, Mazavi right now, like we turn on worship music, whether he's here at church or he's at home and he just goes, Jesus, and his hands go in the air. It's like ingrained in him. He thinks worship music is called Jesus. Like he, every, like if I try to say, are you talking about worship music? He's like, where's Jesus? But he's talking about worship music. Like if we're in the church, he's want, he hears worship music. He just goes, Jesus, and starts pointing to the sanctuary. Okay, so Jesus is saying, you have to become like them in your innocence, in your wonder, in your worship, and in your natural expression of need. Kids know that they need mama and daddy. They tell you a hundred times a day. But for some reason as adults, we forget we need the Lord. We don't relate to the Lord that way anymore. Um, And then our last story, verse 18. A certain ruler asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. He said, all these I have kept since I was a boy. I was like, well, good for him. Could, could y'all say the same about all the commandments? He's kept them since he was a boy. This is what he says. So either he's really awesome or he just doesn't have accurate self-perception, okay? But have you ever been overconfident? I mean, that's happened to me a time or two, right? Okay, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. In other words, Jesus doesn't tell him he's wrong on everything else he says he's getting right. But he does tell him he lacks one thing. What's the one thing? Sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. This is such an important story because this is the rich young ruler story. And the reason it is important is Jesus only personally looked at somebody and said, come follow me if he planned to make them a disciple. This man had an invitation to become a personal disciple of Jesus. And if he had obeyed, we would know this man's name. But he didn't obey. We don't even know his name. We just know he's called the rich young ruler, right? What is it so, why is it so hard for this man? He's rich. Okay, it says, when he heard this, the man, he became very sad because he was wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for somebody who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why is it difficult for the rich? Because they're attached. They rely on themselves. They don't have need. They're addicted to comfort. Right? When you have everything you need, do you want to let it go and do the hard thing of what following Jesus might entail? I mean, Jesus didn't own a house. He didn't have a closet full of clothes. He didn't always know who was about to provide his next meal, right? He lived a life on the road, literally serving the needs of humanity. He didn't have a palace to come back to for the night. He didn't have a nice honorarium people were giving to him everywhere he went and spoke, right? He literally served humanity with no regard for himself. So when Jesus says, come follow me, he's gonna see wonderful things, but he's also not telling him it's gonna be easy and comfortable and and lush and lavish. So the guy is sorrowful because he was very wealthy. And it says, those who heard this 
asked, who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. So is Jesus saying it's not possible for rich to enter the kingdom of God? No, he's saying God is able to do this. Even though this man is not able to give this stuff up, God is still able to reach his heart in some way. Why is this an important story for us to lean into? If we were to measure ourselves in comparison with the rest of the world, what might America be called? America is the rich young ruler. I don't know if you've ever been on mission trips, if you've traveled to third world countries, but the things they're thinking about day in and day out are not the things we have to think about. They're thinking about how they're gonna have clean water, where their next meal is coming from, maybe the physical labor involved to provide just the basic needs for their family. They're not thinking about what type of car do they want or what dress they're wearing to the next event. So I say that because I feel like when we read the story of the rich young ruler that we don't need to say, well, I'm not wealthy like this man. We, in comparison to the rest of the world, we are the rich young ruler. And so I just wanna ask, what might Jesus be asking? Will you lay this down? Will you give this up in obedience to me and be willing to follow? Is there anything God would be saying, would you be willing to let this go so that you can follow me? Even if it's radical, even if he says, my sister's given away multiple cars because God has laid it on her heart. We've received one. (laughs) But would you ask God, like, what are you asking me to let go of that I can fully follow you with everything you have? And what I love about that story is what's unseen in the story is Jesus saw his true heart. He knew this man had a true, sincere heart to follow him. So he zeroed in on the one thing that was preventing that. Okay, I'm gonna pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that your word is good because you are good. And we thank you that you continue to reveal more about who you are and who you have called us to be. And I pray, Lord God, that you bless every seed that was planted today, that your Holy Spirit speaks on the inside of us. I pray that your words to us will produce a harvest. I pray, Lord God, you would give us your eyes to see the loss that are in our midst and give us the courage, Lord God, to pursue them the way you would pursue them. Lord God, we just want, we want to be your servants in every way for your glory, for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>